Welcome to our first of eight sessions on You've Got Questions and God Has Answers. Today we're going to look at the question, how do we know that God exists? And then next week, we're going to look at the question, is the Bible consistent with science? And we're going to have Dr. Jonathan Sarfati with us. And Dr. Sarfati uh, has a, a Ph.D., uh, in uh, chemistry, and he is with and has been for many years Creation Ministries International. So he's coming to us. He's originally from New Zealand. He's coming to us from his home since 2010 in Atlanta. But we will have him for both hours next week, our 9.30 hour and this hour. And we will also have a 2.30 in the afternoon Q&A session with him. And this coming Wednesday at 2.30... He's going to be on local radio, WMUZ 103.5 FM. He'll be interviewed on the Bob Duco show. So if you're able to tune in, uh, you'll be able to hear his accent and uh, hear what he's about. And they're also going to plug our uh, his appearance here uh, next Sunday. And then we've got several other uh, questions that we're going to be answering over these next weeks. Is the Bible reliable? Why does God allow suffering? Is Jesus the only way? Can anyone know for sure he's going to heaven? Why are there so many hypocrites in the church? And isn't the church just a man-made institution? These are all questions that are commonly asked uh, by people who might have objections to Christianity. So we're trying to help you with that, help you if you have those questions, but also help you to answer those questions uh, from those who might ask them of you. So today, the first question we're going to consider is, how do we know that uh, God exists? How do we know that God exists? You should have your notes, and on that first page at the top, first we need to ask ourselves what kind of evidence is required in order to prove that God exists. And I say at the top there, a great deal of ink has been spilled on the question of whether it's possible to prove God exists, and if so, what would that proof look like? Skeptics will often insist that while no No one can prove that God doesn't exist. There's no more evidence for God's existence than the existence of Santa Claus, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, and invisible fairies. What these skeptics often fail to recognize is that the God of the Bible is a fundamentally different kind of being than Santa Claus, Bigfoot, and so on. And therefore, the way in which one proves God's existence must be fundamentally different too. The truth is, we can't detect God in the same way we detect things within the universe. God exists at an entirely different level of being than the universe. It's not that God is more ephemeral than other beings like us. In fact, it's quite the opposite. God's the most real being of all, which means we need to steer clear of crude attempts to prove or disprove his existence. Those that treat God as though he were just like any other being. So how then can God's existence be proven? If it's not going to be by a photo, it's not going to be by a picture. We've all seen the fuzzy pictures of Nelly, the Loch Ness Monster, and the supposed video of of Bigfoot and all that. But God's existence isn't going to be proven by any of those kinds of things. So then how can it be? The answer is, even though God cannot be directly perceived like the ordinary things within the universe, it turns out, and this is an important line, it turns out we cannot make sense of the ordinary things we do perceive and the universe as a whole unless God exists. We can't, and we're going to go through today, trying to show that many of the things that we assume in everyday life to be true 
cannot actually be the case unless God exists. We can't make sense of the ordinary things that we are able to perceive and of the universe of a whole unless, in fact, God exists. In short, the only worldview, only a worldview centered on a transcendent, perfect, personal creator can make rational sense of the very things that we take for granted all the time. So what kind of evidence is required? The evidence that we're going to supply today is going to be evidence that you need God in order to be able to know anything else. To know anything else that you take for granted to be true, you need God in order for that to be possible. Now, we'll see that in a bit. But why does all of this matter? Well, middle of page one, whether or not the God of the Bible exists makes all the difference in the world. If God exists, that affects everything simply because of who God is. If he exists, everything else depends on its existence and its nature on God. If he exists, the ultimate reality is a personal one, a rational one, and a moral one in nature. If God exists, it follows the universe has a transcendent personal cause from which it derives its existence and its meaning and its direction, its intelligibility, and its moral character. If God exists, life on this planet isn't, is not a cosmic accident. Most important of all, we are not a cosmic accident. We were brought into existence by God for a purpose. How could there be anything more significant for us to consider than that? Now contrast that. Contrast that worldview, a worldview in which our universe is the creation of a personal God, with the worldview of naturalism, which is arguably the most prominent alternative in Western society today, at least among intellectuals. Naturalism is the view that only the natural universe exists. According to naturalism, there's nothing beyond or behind the space-time universe, and everything within the universe can be explained scientifically in terms of physics and chemistry. For the naturalist, either the universe came into existence out of nothing with no prior cause or explanation, or it has always existed in some form or another. Naturalism asserts that all of reality, including us, consists at bottom of nothing more than fundamental physical particles and forces operating according to the laws of physics. It denies that there are any irreducibly non-physical things, spirits or souls. Above all, there's no transcendent creator. As one influential naturalist elegantly summarized his creed, quote, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. You see the footnote there? That is Carl Sagan, who, you know, from a Christian standpoint, knows better now. He's deceased. But the time he was living, that was what he believed, that the universe was all there is. And he he propagated that religion, and it is a form of belief, and thus a religion, on the public airwaves. In fact, public airwaves in part supported by tax dollars on uh, PBS. According to naturalism, then, nothing in the universe is ultimately good or evil. Objectively speaking, the universe is simply a clump of physical things doing what physical things do, obeying the laws of physics. And in the final analysis, there's nothing more to be said about it. Now, I'll be saying more about that in a bit. But for now, that's another important statement. That if you if you don't have a God outside of the universe and above the universe then the only thing, the only reality is the physical universe and all we are are physical things doing, operating according to the laws of physics 
And you might be able to see where that goes. How can anything then be deemed to be absolutely right or wrong if that's the case? I mean, all I'm doing is doing what the natural physical process requires of me since I'm strictly a physical being. Now, not all naturalists have consistently thought through that, the implications of their worldview. But those who have can be quite forthright about it. Here's how one naturalist philosopher concisely answers some of the major questions of human existence. Middle of page two. Is there a God now? What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What's the meaning of life? Ditto. There is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Does prayer work? Of course not. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Notice, not a chance. Now, why is there not, why is there not free will? Because we are machines. Because we are simply cogs in the machine. We are simply physical. That's all we are. And so we are simply operating according to uh, the physical laws of the universe. And therefore, no free will. So naturalists must believe in what's called determinism. What we do is physically determined by the laws of the natural world, by the laws of, of physics. So what happens to us when we die? Everything pretty much goes on as before except us. What's the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? Ah, there's no moral difference between them. Does history have any meaning or purpose? Answer, it's full of sound and fury, but signifying nothing. Paraphrasing the words of Shakespeare's Macbeth there. So, but notice, what's the difference between right and wrong and good and bad? There's no moral difference between them. This is the very forthright view of one naturalist. That's the perspective of naturalism, the most prominent and intellectually consistent there is no God worldview in our day. But nothing we've said so far actually refutes naturalism. We've only contrasted two competing worldviews and their implications so that we can be clear on what's at stake and why the existence of God is such a central and defining issue. With that in mind, now let's turn to consider some of the reasons why the Christian worldview makes far more sense than the naturalist worldview. We're going to look at six of these. Six reasons it's impossible that God does not exist. The first one is existence itself. The need for God, in fact, the necessity for God, and the fact that anything at all exists. Bottom of page two. Here's a truth so obvious it seems almost perverse to mention something exists. Even if you doubt everything else, you cannot reasonably doubt that you exist. As the philosopher Rene Descartes famously argued, you have to exist in order to doubt your own existence. Most of us happily acknowledge that many things exist, stars, mountains, trees, rabbits, buildings, smartphones, and so on. But for those who reflect on those matters, then the question becomes, why? Why does, why does in fact, something exist? In the words of the late great Christian theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer, he would say many times in his books, the question that philosophers have to grapple with is, is why does something rather than nothing exist? Exist. Why does anything exist at all? 
When a sense, this most obvious of truths, top of page three, something exists is rather surprising. After all, none of the things in that short list on the previous page had to exist. Each of them might not have. The universe could have been very different. It could have existed without any of those things. Likewise, for anything else in the universe, we might care to list. So the existence of all these things begs for an explanation. What accounts for why they're here? What accounts for the fact that anything exists? Now, philosophers have a special term for that. It's that next paragraph. It's the word contingent. Things that do exist but didn't have to. And a contingent thing is one that might not have existed even though it does, in fact, exist. Its non-existence is logically possible. So, for example, the Eiffel Tower is contingent. It didn't have to exist. The French could have decided never to build it. It's entirely possible for it to cease to exist at some point in the future. And the same goes for any man-made object and also for living organisms, including your parents. Everything in the physical universe is contingent. It's important to see that what's true of the parts are also true of the whole. So last sentence in that paragraph, the cosmos as a whole is an inconceivably large physical thing and therefore it's a contingent thing. All right. If you're still awake, it's just saying that that word contingent means stuff exists, but all of these contingent things, which is everything in the physical universe, didn't have to. Thus the name, it's contingent. But then notice the argument now. In paragraph four, if the universe as a whole is contingent, there needs to be an explanation of why. And that explanation cannot come from the universe itself or anything within it. One of the great difficulties faced by the worldview of naturalism is that it offers no explanation for the existence of the universe and thus no explanation for the existence of anything because, according to naturalism, only the universe exists. This problem is extremely acute. Naturalism forbids any explanation for the existence of the universe since it insists there's nothing beyond the universe that could explain its existence. Yikes. So here we exist, got all this physical stuff that exists, the physical universe exists, but it can't explain itself. It's all contingent, all begging then for an answer to the question, why, why does it exist? It could, it could not have existed. And yet, according to naturalism, you can't look for an answer beyond the physical universe because, in fact, that's all that exists in this view. Now, in stark contrast to that, you've got the Christian worldview. And that includes three fundamental tenets. God exists. Ah, but God is not a contingent being. So all of the contingent stuff is explained by Someone or something non-contingent. And in the Christian worldview, that's a personal God, a non-contingent being. And thirdly, God freely chose to use his unlimited power to bring the universe into existence. Precisely because God is fundamentally different than any being in the universe, the puzzle of existence finds a coherent answer. The universe is not self-existent. It has to derive its existence from other, some other source. But God, by his very nature is absolutely self-existent. If God had to derive his existence from some other source, then he wouldn't be God at all. In fact, the other source would be the real God. So the Christian worldview can account for the existence of the universe in a way that the naturalist worldview simply cannot. In sum, the obvious truth that something exists gives compelling reason to believe in God. Existence itself points to the existence of God. So that's one.
The fact that you're here, the fact that I'm here, the fact that it is here, and all of it is contingent, requires an explanation, and that explanation can't come itself from something else that's contingent. And so the Christian worldview is that a non-contingent being, namely God, accounts for all of the contingent things we see in the physical universe. So that's God in existence, one of the six arguments for how we know God exists. But here's a second, top of page four, God and values. One of the things we do all the time, usually without thinking about it, is to make value judgments. We'll say or think that something is good or bad. In extreme cases, we'll even use concepts like perfect or evil. Sometimes these judgments are clearly subjective in the sense that they depend on our own personal taste. So you might like coffee and you say coffee is a good thing. You might have friends who don't like coffee at all. That's a subjective thing. And people make very different uh, value judgments about that. But not all value judgments, second paragraph, are subjective and person relative. Some are objective. In the sense that when we make those judgments, we're saying something is good or bad, notice, regardless of anyone's personal tastes or preferences. For example, the discovery of antibiotics was a good thing, while the Holocaust a bad thing. Indeed, a supremely evil thing. No right-thinking person really believes these value judgments are merely matters of personal taste or cultural preference. People may disagree about which things are objectively good or bad, but the fact is that everyone makes some objective value judgments, whether they recognize it or not. So remember uh, a couple of pages ago, we have a naturalist saying, is there any such thing as right and wrong? Uh Uh-uh. How can he account for How can he account for that? So how do you account for the fact, and how does the person who does not believe in God account for the fact that that very person, like all of us do, makes these objective value judgments? Against what standard are those things considered to be good or evil, uh, right right or wrong? How can a machine be blameworthy? If all we are is physical processes, then how can we say that something someone does or something someone believes, their values, are, are right or wrong? If, only, if we're only physical machines, hear this, friends, then why are we responsible? It was already determined, as we saw, there's no free will. And there can't be in a naturalist uh, closed universe. So think about it this way. Have you ever noticed the ambivalence with which we use the word sick? You know, if, if, I, if I get the flu, then, you know, I might not come into the office here and I might call Pastor Larry and Paula and say, I'm not going to be in today because I'm sick and I'm, I'm physically sick. And I might go to the doctor and I might take some medicine and all that. That's one way we use the word sick. Another way we use the word sick is when we talk about somebody's, somebody's behavior. And have you ever you know, just gotten really mad or you've heard somebody else really mad at somebody else and their, their behavior and you say to them, you're sick. I mean, with the disdain, you're sick. And then sometimes it's followed with, you're sick, you need help. Well, look, if... You know, when I have the flu, my wife never says to me, you're sick. You need help. She's not ticked at me for having the flu. It might be an inconvenience, but she knows I didn't do anything wrong. I just caught the flu. 
But when we talk about people's behavior and we, and we say, you're sick and you need help, we're making a moral judgment about that, aren't we? And we do that all the time. But if we're just, if we're just physical processes, why do we do that? Why the disdain? You need help. You're sick. Or consider this. Some of you might know the name uh, Christopher Hitchens. He's uh, deceased as of a couple years ago, but uh, he was probably, you know, maybe Richard Dawkins, but he was uh, one of the four horsemen of the new atheism, they were called. And uh, he was one of the most prominent spokesmen was Hitchens. And he appeared on TV a lot of times. He had the British accent, which, as you've heard me say, gives you about an additional 20 IQ points. Just when people hear the British accent, that's a smart dude. I wish I had a British accent. I need all the IQ points I can get. And so he sounded smart. And the truth is he was very smart. He wrote a number of books. The last book he wrote before he died was God is not good. And then the subtitle was something like how religion destroys everything. See, here's the problem that Christopher Hitchens had. How does he determine what good is? On what basis does he know what is good? And especially good for everybody. Or bad for everybody. In the very title of his book, he has a problem. From the standpoint of his own worldview. So you can Google this uh, online, but if you were to Google the Hitchens-Wilson debate, Douglas Wilson and Christopher Hitchens. Douglas Wilson is a pastor in Idaho. And they did a series of debates. In fact, they traveled the country doing these debates. And you can read them, uh, read the debates. There are transcripts of that. I find that to be fascinating. Uh, They went back and forth. Uh, writing, one would write a short essay, the other one would refute it. This went back and forth uh, in their first debate about six times, so it doesn't take forever to read, and it's and it's fascinating. But but Wilson kept, as you read that, he kept challenging Hitchens. Hitchens kept talking about how bad religion is and how wrong religion is, and Wilson kept saying, "Okay, I get that. I hear you saying that. Just tell me where you're getting this standard of right and wrong. Tell me where this comes from." He says, you know, you sound every bit like a preacher with a floppy Bible and all, condemning people for all the bad things they've done. And all I want to know is, where's the standard of bad you're referring to? And of course, Hitchens had no answer for that. None. You can read it yourself. He had a response, but not an answer. His response would be things like, uh, uh, human intuition. He would say things like that. We know things are right and wrong because of human intuition. Well, you can see that that gets knocked down very quickly. What kind of intuition, just to use the extreme, again, the Holocaust, what kind of human intuition was at play there? Right? So back to the middle of page four then. Now, what does all this have to do with the existence of God? Well, here's the argument. Any objective value judgment presupposes some objective standard or criterion of judgment, some objective standard of goodness by which things can be judged. What's more, that standard has to be independent of us, otherwise it wouldn't be objective. It would be subjective. 
It can't be reducible to human desires, feelings, or preferences as if the Holocaust was bad for no other reason than that most people didn't like it or want it. What if most people had wanted it? And you say, well, it's absurd. Who would ever say the Holocaust was just... Hey, listen, a consistent naturalist has to say this. Has to. Uh, Alan Dershowitz, you all know who he is? Attorney, Alan Dershowitz, part of the OJ Dream Team. Uh, I saw a debate between uh, several years ago between Alan Dershowitz and uh, and uh, Alan Keyes. Do you remember Alan Keyes? He's an African-American man who ran for president several years ago. He's very well-spoken and uh, is a good debater, and they had a, a debate about the existence of God. And Keyes pressed Dershowitz about objective right and wrong, and he brought up the Holocaust. Now, this is very interesting because Dershowitz is Jewish. So what made the Holocaust wrong? We agree it is wrong. What made it wrong? And Dershowitz could only say, and I'm quoting now, it violated conventional norms. It was a violation of conventional norms. You don't normally put human beings and and destroy them in mass and in ovens and, and all of that. That's the best this brilliant man could come up with. Fourth paragraph, page four. Furthermore, that objective standard must represent pure goodness, must be absolutely good. Otherwise, it couldn't serve as the final standard of what is good and bad. So bottom of page four, just before God and morality, once again, something we take for granted in our everyday lives drives us to acknowledge the reality of God. Only on the assumption that God exists can we make sense of the value judgments that we make about ourselves, others, and the universe we inhabit. So that's God and values. Thirdly, God and morality. This is an extension of the previous argument. Most would agree that the most important value judgments we make in life are moral ones. We make decisions based on moral values, and we make moral judgments about other people's decisions and actions. We believe that some actions are good and right, others bad and wrong, in some cases even wicked or evil. Some of these moral judgments are based on subjective tastes or personal interests, but many times they aren't. They're they're objective moral judgments. When we agree that it's wrong that the, what the Nazis did to the Jews or what the Islamic State has done to innocent civilians in Iraq or Syria, we don't mean merely that it's wrong for us and by implication not wrong for them. No, we mean it's morally wrong, period. It's not just a matter of different personal preferences or cultural tradi- traditions. What these murderous people have done is objectively immoral, indeed absolutely immoral. The moment we say that, though, we're assuming there are moral standards that are objective and absolute. We're presupposing there are moral laws which transcend human individuals and human societies. So who or what accounts for those standards and laws? I've given you, uh, if you've been with us in the past, a few times over the years, these illustrations from a book by a journalist named Cal Thomas. Cal Thomas is a journalist and and a Christian. And he wrote a book a number of years ago called Book Burning. Book burning. And the book was about uh, the fact that back then, he's also a conservative Christian, he's conservative politically, and he was making the argument that uh, people accuse conservatives of trying to ban certain kinds of books from libraries and all of that. The premise of his book was, we would love to have that problem, that people are trying to take our books off the shelf. At the time, our books weren't even getting on the shelves, he says. 
So this is kind of a reverse kind of book burning. It never gets on the shelf to begin with. But that was the premise of his book. But in his book, he made the case that people don't think about uh, objective, objective truth and then in turn objective right and wrong. And he gave a couple of illustrations. He said, uh, because of the dearth of books with a contrary worldview, when he goes to college campuses and he speaks on college campuses, he's encountering uh, young people who have been inculcated with a and, and indoctrinated with a particular worldview that doesn't allow for objective right and wrong. And so he gave some examples. He said, I was speaking at one a college and I was talking about the need for objective truth and then in turn objective uh, moral values and morals. And afterwards, I had a young man come up to me and say something to this effect. I'm a 3.8 grade point average political science student. And I don't need you, God, the Bible, or anybody else to tell me how to live my life. To which Cal Thomas said, you know, I perceive that you are cocky. And I also think that all cocky people should be shot. He said, so what if I, what if I did that? What if I acted upon that belief? All cocky people should be shot, and I pull out a gun and I shot you. He said, well, you can't do that. That's against the law. That's what the young man said. Cal Thomas said, what if I get enough people to help me change the law? The cocky people amendment. So that we can rid ourselves of people like you. Is that all right and wrong is? Is a matter of getting 51% of people to agree with my position? He told the story of a young lady who came up, disagreed with the need for objective standards, for truth and for morality. And he said, well, all right, then how do you know what's right and wrong? And let me give you an illustration. What if we were neighbors and my dog went onto your property and messed on your lawn? Would it be wrong for you to come over and kill me for allowing my dog to do that? And she said, well, I wouldn't do that. And he said, well, why not? And she said, because of my socialization process. He said, you're what? My socialization process. I was socialized by my parents that something like that would be wrong to do. He said, well, let's reverse it then. It's not my dog going on your lawn. It's your dog coming onto my lawn. And I didn't have your parents. Is it okay for me to shoot you now? Of course, she had no answer, right? And so, the, and these are all intelligent people. Dershowitz, Hitchens, these young people on college campuses. But they've imbibed a worldview that doesn't think about these ultimate matters and therefore do not have answers to even things that they operate with on a regular basis. Third paragraph on page five. Objective moral judgments presuppose the existence of God. You may be surprised to hear that many atheists agree on that point. Nietzsche and John Paul Sartre provide two famous illustrations, but a more recent example is particularly illuminating. Joel Marx is a professor of philosophy at the University of New Haven who for many years wrote a column entitled Moral Moments for the magazine Philosophy Now. In 2010, he penned an article entitled An Amoral Manifesto in which he explained why he had become a hard atheist, someone who denies both God and morality. 
His confession is strikingly forthright. The long and the short of it is that I became convinced that atheism implies amorality. And since I'm an atheist, I must therefore embrace it. The religious fundamentalists are correct. Without God, there is no morality. But they are incorrect. I still believe about there being a God. Hence, I believe there's no morality. Why do I now accept hard atheism? I was struck by salient parallels between religion and morality, especially that both avail themselves of imperatives or commands which are intended to apply universally. In the case of religion and most obviously theism, these commands emanate from a commander. And this all people call God, as Aquinas might have put it. The problem with theism is, of course, the shaky grounds for believing in God. But the problem with morality, I'll now maintain, is it's in even worse shape than religion in this regard. For if there were a God, his issuing commands would make some kind of sense. But if there is no God, as of course atheists assert, then what sense could be made of there being commands of this sort? In sum, while atheists take the obvious existence of moral commands to be a kind of proof of the existence, or excuse me, while theists take the obvious existence of moral commands to be a kind of proof of the existence of a commander, i.e. God, I now take the non-existence of a commander as a kind of proof that there are no commands. That is, there is no morality. He's perfectly correct about the connection between God and morality. The only consistent atheism is hard atheism. Astonishingly, however, he thinks it's more reasonable to disbelieve in God than to believe in morality. Yet what could be more obvious than that killing millions of Jews in gas ovens and slaughtering women and children in the Middle East are really, truly, objectively morally wrong? Conscience and consistency conspire together to drive us to God. Some of you are familiar with the novel, the well, Crime and Punishment, for one, and the brothers Karamazov, both written by Dostoevsky. But uh, Dostoevsky is uh, famous for a lot of things. He was a brilliant writer, one, uh, if you can wade through crime and punishment. But, um, but it, it really makes some profound points. But here is one of the most famous things uh, and noted things he ever said. If God does not exist, everything is permitted. If God does not exist, everything is permitted. If there is no God... And we're wide open as to what can happen. Now, we're going to move on to page six in a moment. But friends, we are living in such a time. Our culture has abandoned a Christian worldview. And because we have abandoned a Christian worldview, now everything is permitted. My father died in 1973. And I often think that if my dad were able to come back and see us in our time and all of the things that are permitted now in our society, he would think he came to a different planet. And that's just within a few within a few decades. If God does not exist, everything is permissible, said Dostoevsky. Top of page six. Fourth reason, God and reason. If you look at that second paragraph there, the last line of the second paragraph, our very ability to reason presupposes the existence of God. And if you'll go down to the bottom of page six, despite the pretensions of atheists to have reason on their side, the leading atheistic worldview, naturalism, faces great difficulties in accounting for our rational faculties. 
One of those difficulties we'll consider on the next page. But the central problem can be simply stated. Naturalism is committed to the idea that reason came from non-reason. The physical universe as such doesn't have a mind. It doesn't have an intellect or any rational faculties. At the beginning of time, the universe was just a highly compressed lump of matter, and lumps of matter have no thoughts at all, never mind rational thoughts. So the naturalist has to believe that rational beings arose out of, an entirely, out of entirely non-rational materials and processes. There's no easy, that's no easier to swallow than the idea that moral beings arose out of an entirely, out of entirely non-moral materials and processes. So with that, I would just to say to you, friends, it takes a lot of faith to be an atheist. In fact, there's a book by that name. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Page seven. God and reason, but then God and the existence of our minds. And you can read um, most of that on your own. But the idea there is the fact that we have minds in which we can be self-conscious about ourselves. I mean, think about this. You can think, as it were, sort of outside of yourself about yourself. But if all you are is just this physical machine, how could you do that? That's the idea here. So the mind is something that is non-material, non-physical. There's a physical component to it, the gray matter. But we wouldn't be able to engage in self-conscious thought if all we were is machines. That's the point being made here. Now that was driven home in a famous debate a number of years ago by the late Greg Bonson. Greg Bonson was a Christian theologian of the first order, an absolutely brilliant guy. We have uh, some of his books in our resource center. One of them is called Always Ready, a book for how to defend the faith. He died at the age of 47 of a heart attack. Um, And so we lost a a great theologian at a young age. But he was debating uh, an atheist, Gordon Stein, And at the beginning of, you can Google this debate, the Stein-Bonson debate, and you can hear the audio. And at the beginning of the debate, Gordon Stein, uh, really in a very pompous way, said, in this debate, uh, I am going to use the laws of logic to show that God cannot exist. I mean, that's a tall order, but that's what he said I'm going to do, use the laws of logic. So they had their format. They went back and forth in the debate. And at the end of the debate, there was a Q&A time. Bonson was able to ask questions of Stein. Stein was able to ask questions of Bonson. When Stein asked questions of Bonson, the atheist is asking questions of the Christian. He said, Dr. Bonson, can you name one thing in the universe other than God that is non-material? And, and Bonson said, yeah, the laws of logic the very laws of logic that you've been using throughout this entire debate. Are those material or non-material? And the crowd cheered (laughs) because the truth is there's no way around that. There's no way out of that. Here's a guy who said, I'm going to use the laws of logic to show that there is no God. And the fact is, those very laws of logic he's using presuppose this God. And Greg Bonson was able to to show that. Lastly, the sixth argument for the existence of God is God and science. Dr. Sarfati is coming next week. And so he will have three sessions, as I mentioned, 
on science. So I don't need to spend much time here. But look at the second paragraph. Atheists who claim to have reason on their side will often insist that they have science on their side too. They'll cite statistics about how scientists are less likely to believe in God than non-scientists. But the truth is, science is only possible because God exists. The next paragraph goes on to say science itself makes is operated on objective moral values, and we've already seen that you can't have objective moral values unless you have God. And then he looked down toward the bottom of page 8. Leaving aside the moral dimension of scientific work, however, there are other underlying assumptions of science that expose our dependence on God. Science can only be pursued by beings with higher intellects and conscious minds, the argument made on the previous page, with the ability to make reliable observations of the physical world and rational inferences based on those observations. Secondly, science assumes the universe is orderly and a rational place, and it assumes that the orderliness and rationality of the universe aligns with the orderliness and rationality of our minds. So, again, Dr. Sarfati next week. In our closing moments... Does God really need, then, to be proven? The best way for us to know that God exists is to see that we couldn't exist unless he did, and the way in which we live and make moral value judgments and make moral right and wrong uh, judgments, the way we think, all of that could not happen apart from God. But does God really need to be proven at all? Actually, no. Bottom of page 8. Indeed, from a Christian perspective, That would be quite a bad thing because it takes some serious intellectual effort and aptitude to understand arguments like the famous Thomas Aquinas put together, the teleological argument, the cosmological argument, all of that. Christianity isn't just for intellectuals, it's for everyone. You don't need to be a black belt in philosophical jujitsu to know that God is real. On the contrary, the Bible teaches that the existence of a personal creator, notice, is plainly evident to everyone from his creation. God's fingerprints are everywhere. Every single element of the universe, from the magnificent spiraling galaxies to the tiniest snowflake, offers evidence of its divine authorship. When we survey a beautiful landscape or gaze at a glorious sunset, when we delight at the delicate beauty of a butterfly's wings, when we marvel and rejoice at a newborn baby, feel the prick of the moral law within us, when we have a deep sense that our lives are not merely a great cosmic accident, when we experience all these things and many others besides, it's literally the most natural thing in the world to believe that there is a creator behind them. It actually takes more concerted mental effort to suppress belief in God. We can't live without him. So I end with why do we try? The Bible says, you see there, the fool says in his heart there is no God. When the Bible says fool, it doesn't mean ignorant. Christopher Hitchens is brilliant. Alan Dershowitz, brilliant. Richard Dawkins, brilliant. It doesn't mean dumb. It doesn't mean ignorant. Foolishness in the Bible is this. It's the opposite of wisdom. Wisdom is the application of what you know. Foolishness is failure to apply what you know. And the reason the person who says there is no God is called a fool is because they know. And they fail to apply it. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, how do they know? Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words, no sound is heard from them. And then famously in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who do this. 
suppress the truth by their wickedness. Notice, suppress, hold down the truth. Now, how are they able to hold it down and suppress it since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain? Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without an excuse. That last phrase, without an excuse. I'll just talk about what that means. I'll put something on the screen, and we'll be done. But that last phrase, without an excuse, is the translation of a Greek word in your New Testament, apologia. And some of you are familiar with a, a discipline in Christian theology called apologetics. Apologetics is a defense of the faith, a defense of what we believe. Uh, Bible colleges, seminaries have course and courses on apologetics. I took apologetics when I was in seminary. How to defend the faith. It comes from this Greek word apologia. To defend. That phrase at the end of Romans 120, without excuse... In Greek, it's the negated form of apologia. That is, without a defense. Indefensible. People who deny God have no defense for doing so. They have no defense for doing so because God has made himself plain to them and they can't live apart from the existence of this God, this very God that they deny. And so, friends, I say this to you. The stakes could not be higher for you acknowledging the creator who made you. And because he's your creator, he is also your owner. And he is the one then who has designed the purpose for your life and who is to direct your life. But because of, the Bible says, our wickedness, because of sin, we're separated from God and we deny that which is made plain to us. The stakes could not be higher for your life. The stakes could not be higher for your afterlife. Now, we exist as a church here to help people be reconciled to the God from whom we all come into this world separated. I would love the opportunity to talk to you. Call the office this week. We can set an appointment to talk about how you can have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those of you who might be here for the first time, if you guys have the connection card, let us know how we can help you. And if you see at the bottom there, cbctrenton.com, that's our website. And if you go there, you will see that kind of graphic. That's our homepage. And then you'll see one of the icons is that connection card. And then uh, you just click on that and it takes you to a form. And you can put your question in there. You can put information about contact information about yourself as little or as much as you want. Okay? All right, let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Dr. Sarfati will be with us next week. Father, thank you for this Lord's Day and the blessings of it, the opportunity to have worshipped you, praised you, learned of you from your word. I thank you for this session and the opportunity to review how central, absolutely central you are to all that you have made. Without you, nothing exists. Apart from you, we don't know objective truth. We don't know objective right and wrong. We can't pursue science. We can't think self-consciously about ourselves. All of this presupposes and is only possible because of you. Thank you, Lord, for doing the work necessary to bring us out of intellectual darkness and into light. 
In your light only do we see the light. And so we thank you for turning the light on, as it were, in our minds by your grace and by your spirit at a point in time. And for any who have come here and for whom this is is new and for whom this may be a new challenge, I ask you, Lord, in your grace to use that to move upon their hearts and minds and to draw them out of the world into yourself. We ask you to go with us this week as we serve you in the various places you've assigned to us and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.